The Metal Mentality Podcast is brought to you in partnership with AM300 and The Phoenix Project. For more information on both, check out am300.com slash metal. It's time for you to be the you that you know you can be and define your metal. My name is Preston Yule, and I'm the host of the Metal Mentality Podcast. I'm a husband, a father, and American soldier. Changing the lives of others has become my passion. What is metal? It's your strength of character that you rely on to endure hardship. It's your grit. Our mission is to teach you to consistently believe in your ability to endure hardship in a courageous manner. Together we'll learn from some dedicated, passionate, metal-minded individuals who define themselves by their grit and their graduation from suffering. Be metal. Stay metal. Welcome to the show today. This is Metal Mentality. I'm your host, Preston Yule. Today, I'm joined with Michael Rutledge. How are you doing today, Mike? Good, Preston. Thanks for having me on the show. No, I appreciate you taking the time to do this. Can you go ahead and, for those of you that, a lot of our audience may not know exactly who you are, why don't you go ahead and give us an introduction on yourself? Uh, Well, it's kind of awkward sometimes, given a a 30-year rundown of your life. Um, I just officially retired October 1st from uh, 30 years of active duty. Actually, 29 years and seven months, but I like round numbers. Um, retired for 30 years out of the U.S. Army. Um, I started back in 1990, enlisted in the Navy, was a helicopter rescue swimmer for about three years at a uh, little island in Guam. And then I went to basic underwater demolition school at the end of 1993 and uh, graduated in class 197, went to SEAL Team 1 uh, for about seven and a half years. And uh, then I was a training instructor for a couple of years. And then uh, in 2002, I applied for the Warrant Officer Canada program for the U.S. Army because I was too old to fly for the Navy and uh, got selected and then transferred in 2002 in the summertime to Fort Rucker, Alabama. Became a, spent a year at Fort Rucker and was winged an Army aviator in 2003 and reported directly to the uh, 160th Special Operations Aviation Regiment. Went through six months of advanced training, got qualified in the MH-47 which is uh, what? Chinook helicopter. Chinook, okay. Yep. It's a highly modified version of the Chinook helicopter um, just for special operations. And spent the next 14 years and 16 combat deployments flying for the 160th. Back and forth, uh, Afghanistan, Iraq, um, all the other garden spots of the world. And uh, in the summer of 2016, my family and I took an assignment to the U.S. Military Academy at West Point as the commander of the Executive Flight Detachment, 2nd Aviation Detachment there at West Point. And we spent three years there and just retired June 1st, changed command and retired. And now we live a somewhat sedentary and simple life in Northern Indiana. So that's it. That's 30 years in a nutshell. Well, that's a great summary. I think you've practiced that a few times. You seem to have a little bit of a, got that down. <laughs> we got that rehearsal bit. <laughs> I can do it without stuttering now. It's my 36 <laughs> elevator speech. Yeah, wow. That's incredible. So you enlisted in 1990, right? Yeah, I know. That sounds pretty, pretty long time ago. Like but what, I was, I'm thinking about that. I was six years old at that time. Awesome. So yeah, I wasn't even dreaming about being in the army yet, but <laughs> <laughs> not to like poke fun at you for your age or anything. There's no reason to make fun of anybody for that. But what was your motivation in joining the military? I had never, ever thought about doing anything other than being in the military. Um, like some people grow up and say, I want to be a doctor, a lawyer, a veterinarian, or, you know, whatever. Um, 
I had never wanted to do anything except be in the military. That was the profession that I dreamed of when I was a little kid. You know, not only did I play army, I played everything else. And uh, I just never saw myself doing anything other than wearing a uniform. So I didn't know exactly, you know, as I was growing up, what I was going to do in the military, but I just figured that that was the job that I wanted to do. I mean, it was kind of the only thing I was ever thought I was suited to do or wanted to do or had any interest in. Um, so, you know, turns out in the military, there's this whole big, huge menu of fun stuff you can do if you just apply yourself. Um, so I got to do anything that pretty much any man could ever want to do, just happened to be, you know, within the scope of the military. So there's, there was no choice. It's, uh, I had no other thoughts of any other occupation other than being in the military. I totally resonate with that. I, every year when I was a kid, um, I was an army man is what I called it I, for Halloween. I wore camouflage and I went as a soldier. I don't know what I was. A lot of times the camouflage didn't match the desert and forest at the same time. Yeah. You know, like I said, it's, it's so uh, multidimensional. There's a hundred different cool things that you can do Mm -hmm. within the military. So. Yeah. I thought everybody just was like Rambo, but come to find out like there's like one Rambo and then a million guys supporting Rambo. (laughs) It's not true. I think there's, there's a niche for every single personality and talent level in the military and motivational level. If yeah. you're a slug and you don't want to do anything, there's a place for you, but it's not going to be very enjoyable, but there is a place for you. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. So when you enlisted in the Navy, you were a helicopter, what was the, the search and rescue uh, swimmer in the Navy? Is that what you were? Yep. Yeah. Flew on helicopters and um, jumped out and practiced, you know, stranded boaters and surfers and stuff like that and at sea rescue. So were you like an Olympic swimmer before this or what, how did you get into that? Uh, funny you should mention that. I was actually a horrible swimmer. Um, I didn't actually learn to swim until I got into the Navy. Oh man. Um, I mean, the background, I was a fat band kid from this little town in Illinois. So not very much into athletics. Uh, it was just kind of one of those things I decided I wanted to do. And so I looked up the requirements and one of them said, you need to be a good swimmer. So, you know, before the age of Google, you just figured out what are the requirements. Okay, well, first I need to know how to swim. And then once you learn how to swim, then I need to know how to swim faster. And now that I know how to swim faster, now these are the strokes that I have to learn. So it was just kind of a process. I was not at all a predisposed athlete um, or a swimmer. Scott, it's, it's very much, we have the, the cliche saying, like, just jump in and learn to swim, right? Or when you just, you don't know how to do something, we say jump in, figure it out, right? That's literally what you did. It's like you learned to swim as you, as you did. I think that's kind of cool. Well, <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, sometimes I don't know that I always advocate that approach. Uh, I'm kind of a planner and, and a big advocate of pre- preparing to succeed. Um, although I do have a little bit of a funny swimming story that my wife chuckles at. Is, uh, I used to be big in the Boy Scouts. And I was at a summer camp, I think when I was 10 or so. And I just happened to be walking past this lake in Illinois, it's Camp Fellheimer. And I walked past this lake and I saw a bunch of people standing on the pier. So in my 10-year-old self, I thought, I'm like, well, I wonder what's going on over there. So I walked over and I just stood behind somebody. I said, what's going on here? They said, oh, it's the mile swim. You get a merit badge, you can do a mile swim. And I could not swim to save my life. So I'm like, well, I want a merit badge because, you know, 30 years in the military, we were driven by shiny stuff. So if you got something <laughs> shiny, you can wear in your uniform. <laughs> All right. You know. Like, I will go over it. Anyway, so I just jumped in the water and uh, did the dog paddle for a mile. And I think it took me an hour longer than everyone else. And everybody's standing on the shore watching me dog paddle around these buoys in this lake in the middle of Illinois in July. 
Um, but I finished the mile. It took me longer than everyone else, and I took my merit badge and walked back to camp. Um, That's awesome. So, so I guess that was a, a literal interpretation of jump in to learn how to swim, but I don't actually recommend that. So were you an Eagle Scout? No, never made it an Eagle Scout. I was like a C-plus Boy Scout. <laughs> You're really into I just it, wanted, but it's, yeah, it's into the I just, camping. I just, wanted to, yeah, I just wanted to do the activities that were fun. I didn't want to do all the activities. I just wanted to do the ones that I liked. Well, that makes sense. Yeah, the sense of belonging, the fun part. Yeah, because yeah. it does take a lot of work. Yeah. So no, I, I wanted to play with. I, I wanted to play with knives and saws and fire right. and, and shoot bows and, and arrows, shiny and, stuff. Yeah. 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 They got rid of a lot of those fun merit badges, the marksmanship and shotgun shooting and all of that. Yeah. yeah. I didn't really want to do like the community services <laughs> environmentalism get up trash and stuff like that i just want to do the fun stuff yeah no i so i i grew up in the in boy scouts too and um i think i got my eagle scout because my mom basically did it for me and i think i turned my Ooh. my final signature i got like the day of my 18th birthday so i actually got it um <laughs> so no i i was a c plus boy scout as well but um i think my mom basically earned my eagle scout for me so if you got the Eagle Scout, statistically, since I got to see all the specs at West Point, statistically, you're predisposed for a far more successful life than I could ever achieve. That's what they say about Eagle Scouts. Well, you can prove anything you want with numbers is my argument. So, <laughs> so once you were in, once you were the, the swimmer, uh, the rescue swimmer, um, you later became, you volunteered to become a SEAL, right? To be an underwater explode, yeah. demolition expert? And is that linked uh, to the SEAL or are they separate or what, what were the motivation to become a SEAL? Well, uh, kind of academically, um, the school you go to is referred to as basic underwater demolition SEAL school. Mm. Um, and that's the, your sixth or seven month program to transition you from being, you know, walking in the door to not a qualified SEAL, but having kind of been through the gauntlet enough to continue training on with your SEAL team and earn your try and all your qualifications. Um, so that was, you know, it's the equivalent of, um, you know, ranger school or special forces qualification course. Um, it's the Navy's version of that. Um, and I didn't know a whole ton about SEAL teams when I went in the Navy. That was not my goal. I joined the Navy to be a pilot, which is kind of a whole nother podcast of <laughs> failures. Um, but I did not become a Navy pilot, obviously. Um, and so I was in Guam after I just got done flying for 10 hours and I was wrenching on a helicopter and sweating in this, you know, nasty tropical heat. And one of our other helicopters landed and here comes these guys walking off the back. You know, they just gotten out of the water, you know, wearing swim trunks and bare feet and long hair and beards and big muscles. And I just asked them, I'm like, who the heck are those guys? You know, so I said, oh, they're, they're Navy SEALs. Don't look at them. You know, something silly like that. And, uh, don't make eye contact. It'll kill you. Yeah, don't, don't make eye contact. You'll, you'll get vapor. You'll get vaporized. Um, so, you know, I was kind of, uh, I was a pretty cocky young person and having not any idea what I was volunteering for. I'm like, well, those guys job look awesome. I think my job sucks right now. So the next day I just started researching how to be a Navy SEAL. And of course, again, there's no internet. So all you had to do was find what little bit of literature is available and recruiting stuff. And, so I went on up to my career counselor and said, hey, where's the piece of paper? That's how naive it was. Where's the piece of paper I signed to go be a SEAL? And uh, he said, well, it's a little more complicated than that. So it was more complicated. There's actually four pieces of paper you had to sign. <laughs> um, and I did that. And, you know, through a series of events, um, about seven or eight months later, 
Um, I got orders to leave Guam and report to Basic Underwater Demolition Seal School in San Diego, and that was the beginning of it. So it was transition. I mean, you hear a lot of guys talk about the SEAL teams, and I didn't hear Dan's story either. And we might, he and I might get a chuckle out of this, but you know, in this day and age, you kind of hear a lot of people like, "Oh, I never wanted to be anything but a SEAL when I was little, and I was destined, and it's my destiny, and all that kind of stuff." It was not my destiny. I just had a job that sucked at the time, and that looked like a much cooler job. Um, so so boring. You know, gra- yeah, grass is completely. If I get <laughs> idle, I get bored, and then it gets dangerous. Um, you get bored, so, you just decide to become a Navy SEAL, like <laughs> pretty, pretty much actually. Wow. Um, now I'm trivializing it because I do lots and lots of preparation right. to make sure I, I understand, succeed. Yeah. But the decision is about that quick. I'm like, no, oh, I think I'll go do that. Um, anyway, so that's kind of how it happened. And you know, there's plenty of people out there. I think that tell good stories about Bud. You know, there's a hundred guys out there. I'll tell you how that goes. But, uh, so I graduated and, uh, went right across the street to SEAL Team 1 and started advanced training. Um, and that was kind of my, my period of truly growing up. Um, the one thing guys will tell you, all you hear is how hard BUDS is. What they don't tell you is when you actually get to your SEAL Team, life is immeasurably more difficult. Um, and you're not in a training environment, so nobody really cares how much it sucks. So kind of nobody can hear you scream. Mm. Uh, it's, it's a rough it's a rough transition into manhood sort of uh, in the teams, not because it's necessarily abusive, but just because so much is expected of you and you're not in a training environment anymore. Um, so it's, it's definitely a, a growth opportunity. What way did you, would you say that you grew and, and, and the, the extent of that growth? Uh, one, the expectations, I don't care where you come from in the Navy before you go to buds. And I assume it's for every other, you know, ranger school and the SF qualification course, I, probably the same for all of them. Um, wherever else you come in the military, it's kind of sloppy. You know, they say be there at 8 o'clock, you show up at 8.01, 8.03 or something like that, you know, and hey, I forgot this today. There's not really anything catastrophic that happens to you. Um, but a buds show up at the wrong time without the correct equipment and, uh, you know, you pay for it heavily. That's bad and buds, but do it in the team when you have 15 or 16 other guys that are depending on you. Um, you know, not only has it mission failure, but your reliability and your trustworthiness and your reputation, all that other stuff. Um, it's not just, you know, you made somebody late. It's you're affecting the quality and the effectiveness and the lethality and all that other stuff um, of your teammates. And so, you know, that's part of the deal about being in elite small teams is everyone relies on each other. So when you let them down, it's, it's a lot bigger deal um, than just being late or not bringing the right equipment. So would you say that, what word, what one word you used to describe that dependability? Do you learn how to be dependable or what yeah. would, that's Re- what I'm reliability. 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 Okay. Um, yeah. Dependability is it too, because that cascades um, into a hundred other areas, you know, when you're shooting next to somebody or climbing a caving ladder and, in the middle of a rough ocean at night or you're with your dive buddy at nighttime under a ship. Um, you know, that's, I didn't believe that at the beginning that little things, mastering little things, uh, develop into big things, Mm -hmm. but it's the truth. You know, it's the muscle memory, it's the habit patterns, it's the positive habit transfer, all those items that you, you build upon. If you don't have a solid foundation in those, it, it doesn't get better with time. Yeah. You accomplish big things by doing small things. Absolutely. And in the correct sequence. 
Absolutely. You know, a lot of a lot of people will say, "Well, it doesn't matter," and I truly never thought that rolling your socks and underwear in the correct way mattered. I'm like, this is the dumbest thing I've ever seen. But you have to have some mileage behind you and look back to realize that hey, it actually does matter. And I kind of see their point now. It does matter. Um, not that actually having your underwear or socks rolled in a particular matter is going to change the world, but the fact that someone told you to do it in a very specific manner and you complied, that's the learning point from it. Not the fact that, you know, all of your socks were in a very neat orderly line in your drawer. That's so not the point. You're, you're, you're developing habits uh, that yeah. lead to greater habits, right? More. Yeah. But when, but when you're 19, you're like, why does it matter if my socks and underwear roll? Absolutely. Yeah. But you have to be a little bit older to realize that that's not actually the point. Yeah. That, <laughs> I have a lot of stories about that. I'll have to talk about <laughs> sometime. <laughs> Stupid little things like, well, why, why is this a big deal? I'm like, no, it is. Yeah. Well, you know, or particularly in buds, you know, it may not be socks and underwear. That's more of an army thing as I realized. Yeah. Um, but it's, you know, Hey, your boats will be rigged very specifically in this manner. Your dive rig will be set up very specifically in this matter and everyone's will be exactly the same. Um, there's standardization, standardization there for a reason. Mm-hmm. Um, not only, you know, just to ensure compliance, but safety and, you know, so someone else knows exactly how your equipment's set up. Uh, there's a whole big broad spectrum, but it all comes down to um, just personal discipline. Yeah. Personal. And we, yeah. And we don't all have it when we're younger. No, no. And, uh, I'm 35 and I'm still working on that. And I think uh, that's not something the destination you necessarily reaches a process that you continually work on. Yeah. I, we're going to call that a moving target because I'm still working on it. <laughs> it just depends that's, on what area of your life you're dealing with. Uh, I a hundred percent agree with you on that. Um, let's get, let's get into to the real deep stuff here on now. Um, yes. Let's get into the deep stuff. All right. So one of the questions that I ask every guest on the show is pretty deep. Um, what is your opinion on Bigfoot? I think Bigfoot exists. I have, I have nothing to tell me that he doesn't. He's just awesome at camouflage and concealment. I don't really care what he or she is or it. I don't care. I just think it's kind of fun to uh, think there's something stomping around out there in the forest that's making humans crazy because they can't catch him. That I like appeals. that. I, I really like that answer. That's a great answer. I really like that. Good so, on him. <laughs> let's well, no, let's really talk about some serious stuff though. So this, <laughs> no, I, I, I was pretty serious. <laughs> we can get real serious if you want. We'll talk about theories and sightings and all. So the, this name of the show is Metal Mentality. Metal is your strength of character. Metal Mentality I define as consistently re- believing in your ability to endure hardship with fortitude. What what does metal mentality mean to you? How would you define that? Um, it's so different for everybody. When you and I were talking before you started recording about, you know, people having rough times in their life and they kind of wanted to quit on certain things, um, you know, quit on life, quit on relationships, whatever. Um, that's kind of a different thing. But metal mentality is, you know, some people relate that to very strong, boisterous, never quit personalities that we kind of see on social media and stuff like that. And I'm not quite sure I agree with that. I know some pretty uh, physically weak people that are very meek um, in their voice, but are some of the strongest um, people that I know, strong-willed people. So I'm not sure, you know, everybody's kind of fascinated by loud, strong public speakers that 
kind of give their proprietary spin on never quitting and, and all that kind of other stuff. And, and I think that's great, but I don't think that's the definition of metal mentality. And I think that also may be sort of a uh, social media um, product just because it's mm-hmm. convenient. You know, you see a big 250 pound muscular guy talking about never quit. And you can be like me if you do this and just put your brain right and get up in the morning and do all these things. And, and I think that probably works for some people. Um, but there's probably a lot simpler solutions than that. And, you know, so, so what I'm hearing you say is that it's a, uh, it's mental toughness over physical toughness. Well, it's also a process. I think it's how you were raised, um, what kind of conditions you grew up in. I mean, you say, what is it? I can tell you what it is to me. Yeah. Uh, that's, that's what I want to know. What does it mean to you? Yeah. It's setting a goal or defining what your problem is, what problem there is to be solved, coming up with a plan and making the correct preparations to make sure that you no fail accomplish it. And I know that's kind of breaking it down into simple uh, chunks, but within each one of those, you know, there's probably 10 or 15 different subsets or subsets. So like I said, it's probably making it sound easier than it really is. That's, that's my personal philosophy because I get overwhelmed pretty easily, which people find uh, amazing. You know, all they see is the biography and they're like, oh, you must be Superman and solve all these problems without thinking about it. And it must be easier for you. And actually, almost nothing is easy for me. I just have a very well-developed process on how I deal with stress and being overwhelmed and, and problem solving. And, you know, and quite frankly, I'm probably a little bit intolerant of other people who can't solve problems the same way I do as I've been told by several people close to me that not everybody works like you do, you know, so it works for me. It doesn't work for everyone else. So that that's kind of hope the whole point of the show is that break it down Barney style, as we say in the army, right. To, and to the simple processes that you can do that make things seem that they're not impossible. So you you said that you have a well-defined process. How does your process work? Well, it depends, it depends on the problem. Um, very simply, one, I never quit on anything. And, you know, you hear that a lot. It's kind of a cliche. Never quit, never quit. But there's a way you train yourself to to never quit. And when I say it depends on how you were raised, um, you know, and I'm generalizing and I'll probably pay for this later. But, you know, somebody who's grown up in a, maybe a wealthy household who's always had, you know, the best of everything, no real adversity, well-trained, well-groomed, you know, a lot of opportunities – um, they may not meet up with any adversity until they're, you know, let's just say whatever, mid-20s or an adult or something like that. And when adversity hits them, it hits them really hard because um, they're not used to dealing with it. Um, you know, when someone's kind of grown up with a less than ideal childhood, uh, it may be kind of rough going at the beginning. Um, and although a very, very rough process, they learn how to deal with adversity early. And if it's channeled in the right direction, they can kind of use a lot of anger and disparity and a whole bunch of other emotions to, to fuel success. Uh, my only examples I can tell you, or, you know, a lot, a lot of BUDS graduates, I heard a study, uh, we went back to our, our 20 year BUDS class reunion, talking about one of the greatest indicators of success, successful graduation for BUDS was not being an Olympic swimmer or, you know, a CrossFit national champion. It was coming from a broken home where you didn't have any dad and you generally spent your childhood being pissed off. 
you know, why, so, why, why is that? The, why did they say that that was one of the, the key? Well, because they did a big study, you know, and that was the only common denominator that they could find of successful graduates, you know, the largest percentage of successful graduates. Hmm. Um, and that's a scientific, but, and I think more than just the family issues that just kind of goes to show that, you know, that that's a group of men that took something negative and used that to fuel success. You know, now there's also probably people who take negative childhoods and use it as a crutch for why they're not successful and why they're lazy and why they don't succeed in anything because I had a poor childhood. Mm-hmm. Um, poor victimization. Yeah. The victim. Yeah. Mentality. Being the victim. Um, those not that people, they weren't a victim at times, but yeah. identifying as a victim for your entire life. Yeah. Using, as I refer to that as using, using that as a crutch as to why you're not successful. I like that answer. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, and just a very, since you seem to like the personal details, you know, I grew up in a less than ideal, uh, family had a dad that committed suicide when I was 12. Um, so not that that's really a, a sob story part of it, but that definitely fueled me. Um, Hey, I'm going to do this myself. I'm going to, you know, set big lofty goals. And I'm talking some wazoo crazy dreams that I probably lied and told everybody that I was doing the whole time I was growing up. Um, but you know, you talk about it enough, you end up visualizing it and then all of a sudden it becomes true. So if you, if you have the metal, if you will, if you have the intestinal fortitude and the desire, um, you know, you can use all those negative experiences as a, as positive fuel. And that, that's, it, that's good. Yeah. It Not, takes some work. No, it does. And that, that's kind of what the, the whole purpose of this, this, this show is taking difficulty and suffering and using it as a catalyst to propel you to greater things. And it seems that from what you're saying that, that you use that, uh, I don't, I don't know what, what, how you use that exactly, but you use that as, as a way for you to light your fire, so to speak to. Well, it gets really deep. I mean, if I'm not a psychologist, yeah, I'm not a psychologist, but if I had to to take a, a while, barely graduated from high school, observation and a guess um i would say anyone who grows up you know in a less than advantageous childhood probably thinks they're not good enough um Mm -hmm. you know is probably always looking over their shoulder probably always feels like they're not as qualified as everyone else in the crowd and so basically you live your entire life with the fear of failure and that's pretty powerful motivation to overachieve um that would be my guess i'm sure somebody out there who's far more qualified than i am could can correct me or put me in the right direction. But uh, if I were to try and do an assessment looking back at my life, I would say those are probably prime motivators um, because I really didn't meet with a lot of success until I kind of got my career rolling in the military because I certainly didn't meet with any huge successes, you know, in my childhood or, or high school or my horribly curtailed college career. Um, You know, so I had to find the right environment to thrive in. So you say that the the military was that environment you needed. It was right. perfect for me. So maybe perfect you think that. So you were saying that that's why your entire life that's the only thing you wanted to do. Do you think that's why? Because maybe you knew that that environment was somewhere you could be successful. Uh, or maybe, am I just putting words sure. in that? Yeah, a little bit. I'm not sure. I really had that much foresight. Um, I just knew that I liked the discipline. I liked the uniforms. I was a history buff. You know, um, so I don't. I don't think I was really seeking, uh, you know, I didn't have daddy issues that I thought the military was going to solve. That certainly wasn't the case. Um, I think it was just a place for me to prove myself that I wasn't the kid that everyone thought I was when I grew up. 
Hmm. You know, I, I mean, like that. Yeah, it's it's amazing the self reflection that a podcast can bring out with you. <laughs> there's so much self reflection that I've had just in creating this podcast that I'm like, oh wow, oh wow, like these pieces have been missing to the puzzle for all the 35 years that I've been alive. They come, yeah, as as you uh, look internally, I guess is how I would describe it. Uh, so later, so you went to SEALs. How long were you a Navy SEAL? And what did you do after you became a Navy SEAL? Let's talk about that. Let's talk about your time as a SEAL and then what you did later. Uh, about nine years, I was in the SEAL teams combined. A um, couple of years as an instructor and the rest at SEAL Team 1 there in San Diego. Mm-hmm. So, um, so, I mean, as far as what I did, uh, I did three deployments there. Um, I ended up being a leading petty officer. Um, as an E6, basically the equivalent of a, of a team leader, and thoroughly enjoyed that. Um, got to travel a lot, um, was one of the uh, air operations instructors, diving instructor, and, you know, at that point, kind of enjoyed the time in the teams. Um, like I said, that's, a, that's in any of the special operations forces, the Ranger Regiment, special forces, you know, Marine Raiders, PJs, whatever, uh, any of those disciplines, you are going to grow as a man or a woman. Um, you just can't help it. You know, the demands are, are such and the consequences of failure are such that you just come out of it a different person. Um, not bad, but there are qualities that no matter what else you go on to do, um, there are qualities and, and personality traits and habits that you bring with you that seem to benefit pretty much whatever you're going to go do. So for me, I had always wanted to fly professionally. Um, I had couple hundred hours or 500 hours as a civilian pilot and I had the opportunity to go to flight school in the army and so that was my last opportunity to do so before I really got too old and aged out of the opportunity to go to flight school in the army so I just did it I mean it was again it was an easy decision like going to buzz I decided I was going to do it the road to get there was far more complicated but uh it wasn't insurmountable hundreds of people do it every year what would you say you learned the most from your time uh, as being a SEAL before you transitioned to the Army? Uh, I learned that I was a crappy runner and that I will always be a crappy runner. And I just barely always met the minimum run standards. Great swimmer, good at all the PT, you know, the physical stuff. But I'm always a crappy runner. To this day, I still hate running, which sounds kind of trivial. Um, I also learned... Uh, you know, that everybody wants to tell, well, public perception of any special operations forces. And I hate to just say SEAL teams. That just happened to be what I was involved with. I have a ton of respect for a lot of my friends that are in the Ranger Regiment, Marine Raiders, PJs, CCTs, special forces guys. I mean, I'm not being politically correct. I have a lot of friends in all the services. And uh, with some age and perspective behind me, like I said, I have a lot of respect for all of them. Everybody's got different jobs. Me personally, I just learned that that in any of those soft units, there's such an intolerance for laziness, you know, being selfish, um, all those things that kind of are allowed to a certain degree in the conventional forces. They're just not tolerating those units because they're so interdependent on each other. Um, I also learned that it's the first time I was ever in a group of people that where everyone was so high speed and so capable that no longer was I, um, you know, first or the top of the class or any of that kind of stuff. 
you know, middle was about as the best that I could do in most disciplines. There's always somebody better. And that's a, that's a tough life to live. You know, that's when you're with those high caliber of individuals all the time, that makes you better, but it's a tough lifestyle. Um, I learned to be paranoid for the rest okay. of my life. That's one of the things <laughs> that the SEAL teams, you never know where the next hit's coming from. Would you and, say paranoid uh, or prepared? Is it, or well, is it, paranoid, which forces you to always be prepared. Okay. Um, you know, you're always prepared for the unexpected. You're always prepared to have something taken away from you. You're always prepared to get balled up and handcuffed somewhere. You're, you know, you're always prepared for there to not be a helicopter at the exfil point, And now you've got to hump out for 10 or 15 kilometers. Um, nothing was ever easy. Nothing was ever as planned. So, you know, figuratively and literally, you're always waiting for the boogeyman to jump out of the bush behind you. Mm -hmm. You know, and so that's not necessarily a bad thing. It doesn't translate very well to civilian life, I will tell mm -hmm. you. Um, and that's not a traumatic thing at all. It's just, you know, a way of life. But, uh, you know, you, you just learn to always prepare for the worst. So always being paranoid definitely puts you in the mindset of uh, thinking ahead of consequences and preparing accordingly. Um, I also learned in the SEAL teams that uh, it is really, really easy to lead brand new guys or weak people, but you better bring your A game when you have 14 or 15 complete pipe hitter A type personalities because they will tolerate nothing less than the absolute best. You don't need to be the best swimmer, best shooter. You don't need to be best of all those guys, but you have to be the best leader. Um, what what makes a leader the best in your experience? That's, that's almost a whole other podcast, but uh, okay. you have to, I mean, I, I taught leadership at West Point, so it's kind of fresh in my mind. Um, one, you have to lead by example. You cannot, um, you cannot lead other people to a place you're not willing to go yourself, figuratively and literally. And you also have to have obviously a certain degree of technical expertise or else they won't respect you and they have to be able to rely on you. But take a, a new Lieutenant who's charge of a platoon or, um, you know, a new company commander that there's no way he can possibly have as much experience as the E six or E sevens that he's leading. But those subordinates, if they know you are leading compassion and you have um, their best interest in mind, they'll pick up the slack for you until you have enough experience um, to be a pipe hitter yourself. Um, that's what I learned. You know, the leadership part was critical and I certainly did not always do it right. Um, so I definitely learned from the school of hard knocks on that one. Um, Cause like I said, the, the audience is, is very intolerant of, of failure. Um, as far as what else I learned is you just learn to, you learn what's important and that lifestyle, um, you know, not to be too dramatic, but almost everything that you do is life and death. Even in training, um, we don't dwell too much on it, but you know, failures in shooting or the skydiving or, you know, the underwater stuff, we do a lot of work to mitigate the risks, but screwing it up is, is often life and death and not just for yourself, but for somebody or, or a lot of other people. Um, so you really learn, um, the consequences of your actions, uh, and you learn to pay attention to detail. So the consequences of your actions, um, 
they can be positive and negative, but let's talk about some of the, the failures that you had as a leader in the SEAL team and what you learned from those and how you use those experiences uh, to, de- to grow and develop. What, what can you share with us about that? Um, you know, and so keep in mind, I left the SEAL teams in 2002. So I had a growth period there, but I had a much larger and more extensive growth period um, when I transferred the army and went through the 160th, because then I was a, you know, I was a warrant officer and I ended up being a, a very senior warrant officer. Um, but in the SEAL teams, I'm not sure I did leadership right. And I think anybody who tells you that they were an E5 or an E6, you know, 26, 27, 30 years old, and they were awesome leaders. Just to clarify, an E5 or E6 is like an army. Is like a sergeant army. or a staff sergeant. Yeah, right. So you're in a leadership position, but you're the junior end of it. Yeah. Yeah. And so anybody who tells you that they were an awesome leader um, is probably telling themselves that because I know I certainly wasn't, um, you know, very rare is the guy or girl who has a maturity at that, that point in their career mm-hmm. to be good leaders because you don't just come out of school being a great leader. It's a learned process. Um, so generally that E5, E6 period is when you're screwing it up, you know, so when you're an E7, E8, whatever. Yeah you know, or a junior, you know, mid-grade officer, you know, junior field grade, something like that. Um, that's where you need to get it right. So, you know, E5, E6, second lieutenant, first lieutenant, junior warrant officers. Um, that's, that's where you're kind of taking your lumps. And that's why they don't put an E5 or an E6 in charge of 50 people because they know you're going to screw it up. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, so as far as SEAL teams, I was in, you know, several leadership positions. I was an LPO. I was an assistant LPO. Um, I was an instructor. And early on, you don't know the difference between being a manager and a leader. And so at that level, yeah. Amen. Amen. (laughs) At at that level, I would say I thought I was the best leader in the world, but really what I was, was a a manager and probably very much like a dictator. And on several accounts, it does not, it did not work out well. Um, When I got a little bit older, you got to remember. So when I transferred to the army, I was 30. By the time I got to the 160th, you know, I was a chief warrant officer too. So I'm looking at like, 32 years old and on up and and now I'm old as dirt because I can remember military before the internet. Um, So, you know, the more experience you get, you learn what works with people. You learn how to be more patient. Um, I certainly became more compassionate because I was younger. I didn't really care about what you had going on at home. This is what I told you to do at this time and you didn't get it done. So I'm going to hammer you. Mm -hmm. Well, when you get older, um, particularly, you know, at my level, um, you start looking at people a little more compassion. You realize, well, you know what? Maybe, um, maybe he's got some issues at home. I'm going to dig into that. You know, maybe there's a, maybe there's a reason he's not accomplishing what I'm telling to, and it's not just because he's being a jackhole. You know, so the older you get and the more perspective you get, the better leader you become because you just kind of become a better person. And I'm generalizing that. That doesn't always happen. Some people grow up to be one-star generals and they still suck as leaders. Yeah, it's, it, um, but you would hope they got it figured out by that point. What would you say the difference between a manager and a leader is? A manager just has a to-do list that they want done at the end of the day. And they dole out duties to get that accomplished. That's a manager. Um, a leader cares how you do it. And a, a leader actually has compassion. That is the key word I have found. Compassion. That's the difference between a manager and a leader. I mean, you know, I hate to use that term, but managers work at McDonald's, you know, Mm -hmm. 
they divide up duties and they get the burgers made. Thank you for um, the people, the managers at McDonald's, because if I need that double cheeseburger late at night, I'm glad that someone's there well, to make it. But I know what you're saying, yeah, because I worked hey, at McDonald's too, and I'm also can, in the Army. So I can, I, I can say that. Yeah, I can say that yeah. at McDonald's. I worked at McDonald's yeah. for three years. So if we're talking very base level, honestly, if we just use McDonald's as, as our stage right now, since we seem to have this common bond <laughs> on working at McDonald's, if we're at McDonald's, and I'm your manager, and I just tell you, go make fries, go make 10 batches of fries. You get over there and start cooking burgers, and I want you to go clean the bathrooms. Well, with that, I'm a manager, and I just told you to go do these things. And they're all gonna be done to different and varying levels of success and quality. A leader, if he sees somebody's not cleaning the bathroom correctly at McDonald's, he goes and grabs them off and says, hey, check it out. This is the way I want it done, and I'm going to do the corners like this. I'm going to show you how to do this. Do you have any questions? And the kid will say, uh, no, no questions. Okay, well, I need you to do it this way, and I need you to have it done by 9 o'clock. Come let me know when it's done. That's the difference between, you know, a guy sitting in the back office and say, go clean the bathroom, and mm-hmm. the guy that actually gives you the task, the condition to which it's supposed to be done, and the time he wants is completed. And he knows your first name, not just, hey, Hey, Joe, go do this. Mm-hmm. So, so that's you, my interpretation of the difference between a leader and a manager in McDonald terms. Uh, no, I think that that's great. I think that's universally true wherever you're at. It's putting it down in barning terms, like we said. So I think that goes along with what you're saying about at times you said that you were a dictator, that you, you told people what to do and didn't care what the circumstances, the conditions were, just get it done versus a leader that's going to have that compassion and be like, all right, maybe you just don't understand this. Let's work through this together. Let me show you how this is done um, and taking all things into consideration that they may, might be dealing with. Yeah. And uh, you know, I, some of the leadership courses and keynotes that I give, I will often explain that uh, you know what, as leadership goes, a dictatorship is the most effective form of leadership. It's concise, it's effective, it's quick, but it's short lived because people will only put up with a dictatorship for a very finite amount of time. Mm-hmm. Um, you can look at historically, you know, they only put up with Mussolini for a little while. Yeah. You know, the first chance they got to kill him, they did. They only <laughs> put up with Hitler for a little while. Yeah. Um, on a smaller scale, um, you know, small units, small businesses, small offices, they're only going to take getting snapped at um, for a short amount of time and they're going to cease being effective and productive employees or workers or soldiers, or sailors or what have you. Um, and that's where being compassionate comes in because if you're using compassion, you can no longer be a dictator. But I will say about a dictatorship is there are sometimes in moments of crisis or time crunches or whatever, when a dictatorship has to be used. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's just, it's like a tool in your basket of leadership that you just pull out and say, Hey, listen, I realize that you all have questions, but right now we're in a time crunch. This is what I need you to do. Stop asking me questions. When it's complete, I'll explain to you everything you want to know. But right now, I just need you to do this. No questions asked. That's a much softer um, presentation of a dictatorship. Mm-hmm. It's, it's the concept, you know. And so with that, then afterwards, you got to soften up a little bit and say, hey, I apologize for snapping at you guys. I didn't have time to explain to you why I needed this done in the manner I asked you to. Um, you know, but I appreciate you pulling through and not questioning me. Um, now for that to work as a technique, 
you have to have already have earned their trust and respect or else they're just going to basically give you the figurative middle finger mm-hmm. and go about and sloughing their way through their job. Um, that's, that's the real practical explanation of dictatorship in the workplace. No, I, I like that. You say that effective leaders is what I'm taking away from you. And these may not be your exact words, but an effective leader has compassion. How, how would you define the word compassion in, in the leadership role? Compassion is putting yourself in your soldiers or your employees or your subordinates um, position and at least considering what their perspective is. Trust me, I am not, to this day and age, I preach it, but I am not always good at it. Sometimes I stop on my own. Sometimes I have to be told to uh, pump the brakes and, you know, hey, for a second, think about what this guy's going through. Um, but that's what compassion is, is before you make a decision or you give out an order or assign a job, ever so briefly, just think about who you're giving it to and how they may perceive it. You know, how they may perceive your tone. You know, if you've got a guy who's A-type and thick skin. You know, I can say, hey, Preston, go do this. Get back to me when you're done. And you're not going to get butthurt about it. You know, you're just going to go do it. If you've got someone else who's kind of a soft soul, you know, who may take that as a sign of aggression, um, you may need a different approach for that. You know, you'll get the same result, but you as a leader have to understand that not everyone responds. um, You know, not everyone responds to the same technique. And that's kind of what I mean by compassion. I know we're breaking it down into very, you know, micro level no 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 i like that i like that yeah. breaking it down to that and in, in, in this sense i think we're gonna to have to have you on for a future episode on um, effective leadership and how leaders can help people who are yeah i know and I'm, I'm, i have that going in my head and i can see it's, it needs <laughs> to happen so we're just talking about your time in the seals so what i'm taking away from this is you learned um about leadership uh, in the time in this in the seals and things to do and don't do and how to be effective in that. And you took that into uh, your next phase was going into the army. Would you say that that's true? Am I, am I understanding that correctly? Yeah, that's true. Um, I think the only thing I will change on that is what I learned from the SEAL teams was how not to do it. So I did not do it correctly in the SEAL teams. So I wanted to say that, but I didn't, I didn't, I didn't feel comfortable saying that. Yeah, no, no, no I could say that for you, you know, got okay. some stuff done. Um, but I'm, I'm not sure if you get to talk to any of my peers uh, during that period, they say, gosh, that guy was an awesome leader. They will say he was, he was a technical expert and he was great at the stuff he taught and, uh, you know, good at a few things. But, uh, at that point I was learning my leadership skills. So I would say that was probably not a strong point, but kind of, I did get kind of the stupid out of my system going forward. Um, so the next time I had an opportunity to lead people, uh, I think I was probably much more effective at it. So yeah, that's about a 50, 50 true statement. Let's talk about your time in, in the army and transitioning to that. You said that um, there was, there's things that you learned going into the army uh, that there was a growing period, right? Well, let's talk about that. What, how did you grow in that transition from moving to the SEALs to the army? Well, one, uh, you know, for a lot of people that maybe aren't in the military, it's kind of a big transition from having an entire career as an enlisted guy and almost a senior enlisted guy Um to then becoming an officer and a very junior officer at that. So there's kind of a, there's a mental shift in that. Um, because, you know, one moment you're the technical expert and kind of well thought of and sought after. And then the next minute, you know, you're in charge of the fridge, which is both liberating. Um, you know, it is, it's very liberating, but on the other hand, 
you kind of feel underutilized a little bit from what you're used to. And that was the case in the 160th. You know, I was the most junior pilot in the company. Um, and the 160th is an amazing organization um, full of, you know, American legends. They just happen to be flying helicopters instead of kicking doors. Um, so I was very humbled to be in their company to start with. You know, so there was a lot of role models, a ton of role models um, all around. So I was, I was really humbled. I thought I was at the top of my game. And then I went to 160th and then I'm back at the bottom again. But it was kind of a good bottom to be in because I had a lot of, a lot of guys to look up to. Um, so that was kind of my growth period. I found several mentors that I chose to model myself after, you know, either technically or, you know, professionally or personality wise. Um, and I was out of my twenties. So I think I was probably in a, a space of maturity where I could actually take that on. I'm not sure I was willing to listen to anybody in my twenties. Um, I'm, and I'm pretty sure that everybody else would say the same if they actually admitted it. Um, you know, but at that point now I was a dad. I had a son who was a year old or at that point, a year and a half old. So that changes your perspective. So, you know, you get a little maturity behind you. Um, you sort of become a different person. I don't know anybody who would say that they were not a different person in their thirties than they were in their twenties. Yeah, I agree. So that was the same, that was the same case for me. So, um, you know, kind of hit the ground running at the 160th. I wasn't in charge of a whole lot for the first couple of years. Um, you know, your leadership, opportunities are kind of linked to your progression as a pilot. So as a very junior pilot, learning the ropes of special operations aviation, I was, uh, wasn't in charge of much except, you know, keeping myself square and, and learning the, the craft. Once I got to that point where I had a little bit of experience behind you, you know, then you had not only are leading uh, aircraft and assaults, but then you're, you're also leading people, uh, both enlisted guys and other uh, warrant officers, pilots, staff, staff folks, and whatever. Um, so big growth period. And of course, over 14 years, you know, you get pretty good at your craft. Um, I certainly was not the best at it. There were some things I was really good at and some I consider probably, you know, best in the unit at, um, but those are few and far between. Um, but yeah, just huge growth opportunity. What were some of the internal struggles that you had to overcome? You talk about you had your maturity, uh, maturing phase, right? I guess you call it. But like internal, like were there insecurities that you had to overcome? Or, or internally and mentally, how did you grow during that time mentally? Um, well, I was kind of an anomaly in the fact that usually um, when pilots will assess to become a candidate to go to the 160th, they've had several years in the conventional army. They've got a lot of experience. Uh, I assessed when I was in flight school to go to 160th. So I was one of the very few guys kind of in the history of the organization that went from flight school straight to 160th as a W1 with no conventional army experience, no aviation deployments, nothing behind me except my experience in SEAL teams. And I thought that was the coolest thing ever until I actually got to the 160th and realized, you know, how much technical expertise it takes to be an aviator or even a crew chief with a 160th. Um, it's, it's overwhelming. So again, you know, I just came from 12 or 13 years of being the top of the pile and Navy SEAL and all that cool stuff that goes with that um, to really being at the bottom of the pile because I was surrounded by extremely experienced and competent aviators. So there was a huge, very steep and very painful learning curve for about the first two or three years that I was in the organization. Um, you know, frankly, to the point that there was a few times I wasn't quite sure, you know, how it was going to turn out. I wasn't going to quit, but I'm like, I'm not sure I'm, I have the skills to do this. Um, but I had a couple fantastic mentors um, 
you know, that kind of gave me a little push when I needed it. So that was a tough period, not, you know, necessarily mentally, but completely overwhelmed with the amount of technology and the learning curve and the skills that I had to acquire and master in a very short period of time, a relatively short period of time. And there was no slack for, well, you're just a new guy out of flight school. You don't have much experience. I was expected to maintain and achieve the same standards as the multi-thousand hour pilots that were going through training with me. Um, so that was, you know, that talk about the fire hose effect. That was completely humbling. Um, and I think that probably carried with me for my, the rest of my career at the 160th is that I always kind of felt that I was a little bit behind everyone else, whether that was real or imagined. I think I always felt, um, you know, there was always playing catch up. There was always someone more experienced, more capable. Um, you know, like I said, whether that was real or just perceived, that's, that's a pretty good motivator. No, I, I like that. I think everyone's going to go through a phase where they're humble and they're going to realize that they're not as awesome as they think they are. I think a lot of times it's just our ego that tells us that we're awesome. Or maybe somebody says that and we hang on to it because it makes us feel good. But being humbled is actually can be a really emotionally painful experience and mentally just draining. Did was there times that you wondered if you were going to make it there, or did you doubt your abilities there? Or uh, and, well, and certainly how- in the beginning, certainly absolutely in the beginning. Um, I say in the beginning. I'm talking like the first couple of years, you know, because um, you just I just dread going to work. I love the flying. I love the organization. I love the mission. But, you know, every day I just dread going to work because I'm like, gosh, I got to go. I got to go hang out and fly, you know, with all these guys who seemingly looks easy for them because they've been doing it for years and years. You know, being being on the ropes is not a comfortable place to hang out all the time. Um, you know, nobody likes going to work with that knot in their stomach, um, which I had for for a good amount of time. Just just trying to meet the standards. Um, at the beginning, you know, but once I got some momentum going, it took a two, three years. Um, but once I got the momentum going, um, and the experience kind of caught up with me, then, you know, then I accelerated, but it was tough in the beginning. Would you say that? So up to this point in your military career, how much would you say your character that you have now has been forged? Or was that the laying down the foundation or was there a moment in your career where you really felt like your strength of character is being forged? You know, if I had to break it down into periods um, of growth, that first three years I spent as a helicopter rescue swimmer, um, that was basically yanked me out of being a stupid teenager, you know, because as benign as it was, I was flying on a military helicopter. I had some stuff that was expected of me. I was given a little bit of responsibility that if I screwed it up, someone was going to get hurt. So that was, that was the beginning of the growth. Um, when I went to the SEAL teams, you know, except for the whole learning how to be paranoid thing and being um, physically tough, it just made you mentally tough. And beyond all the other cool things about being a SEAL that's involved in that, um, the mental toughness set the foundation for success for all the other stuff that, that I did the remainder of my career. So if I just took one thing away from it, you know, it was just being mentally tough. When I transferred to the army, I grew a lot. I grew as a man. I grew in my maturity. I grew in my, my expansive of technical capabilities. 
which if anybody knew me at the 160th would laugh because uh, I say I grew my technical capabilities. It means someone introduced me to, this is a thumb drive. You put it in a computer, um, which before that, before that point, uh, I'm not sure I knew that. I didn't know how to use a cell phone. There was all kinds of funny stuff. Um, and we're talking like, you know, 16 or 17 years ago, but, mm-hmm. but it was definitely a growing in that area too. But each one of those separate portions of my time in the military kind of provided me with, with different, um, very different, but very required and useful tools. Um, what are, what are some of the tools that you learned that you can share with the people listening to your story that may benefit them if they're going through a difficult time and they wonder like, how the heck am I going to get through this? Um, you know, it sounds cliche, but I was asked some time ago on a different podcast is how do you, you know, how do you accomplish all these amazing things? And, you know, not, not to sound ridiculously humble or or gratuitous, but I go back, I'm like, you guys got to realize, you know, I was not a world-class athlete. I was a fat, very unathletic band kid from a crappy little farm town in Illinois. And that's not a sob story. But, uh, you know, I was not genetically predisposed to be a Navy SEAL or spend a life in special operations, certainly not 30 years of it. Um, you know, they're like, well, how did you get through it? And I said, well, here's the deal. If we just take buds as an example, you know, that's, that's six months long. Um, and I cannot handle six, thinking about six months of being uncomfortable. I will quit immediately. Um, so somewhere in my head, and I was like a whopping 23, I think, somewhere in my head, I had decided, okay, well, I can't handle thinking about six months because I'll quit. I can't even handle thinking about a month. I can't even handle, you know, how am I going to get through this week? Um, so somewhere in that line, I figured out my own defense mechanism of, all right, I'm just going to go meal to meal. And I don't mean figuratively. I mean literally meal to meal. You know, we'd get up at five. And we'd have to go do some crappy dark ocean swim and I'm, you know, shivering and miserable and want to quit. And all I would tell myself is, all right, I just got to get to 630 in the morning. If I can get to 630, they have to feed us breakfast. It's a training environment and I know they're going to feed us breakfast. They can't make us skip meals. Like I tried to be logical about it. And then we'd go eat breakfast. And so for a half hour, nobody'd screw with you. You got to eat hot food, drink hot coffee, whatever. And then you go back out and you know, get beat down for another four hours or five hours or whatever it was. And during that period, it would suck. And I want to quit, you know, every single minute of it, but somewhere in my mind, I'm like, all right, I don't even have a watch on, but I know, let's see, I ate at six. We finished at six 30 and I know they're going to feed us at 1130. So I know I only need to make it whatever, five and a half hours. So I just do whatever they told me to do, no matter how much it sucked. And then I know they're going to feed us lunch. So we'd stop and have lunch. And so for a half an hour, you know, you get to get warm, get your head recaged, get ready for the afternoon. And then, you know, we'd go until five o'clock or whatever time class ended. And I'd say, all right, well, I know they're not, you know, it's not hell week. We're not going to go for a week. So this day is going to end. I don't know when it's going to end, but it's going to end. So we'd end and I'd walk back to the barracks and I distinctly remember starting a routine that I did the entire six or seven months, however it was long before we graduated they dismiss us from our formation at the end of training and I'd stand there in the middle of barracks and I'd say, you know what? Day three and I'm still here or day 12 and I'm still here day 88 and I'm still here. And I said that every single day and soon enough, you know, at some point, then it was the end of six months and day, whatever, 
and I'm here. So I actually just went meal to meal for six months. So you said, what I'm hearing is you gave yourself a routine and checkpoints. Is that that correct? Visible and physical checkpoints that I could rely on. So would you say that's true with not just SEAL school, right? Or BUDS, but any different in life is universally true. Yeah, I do with everything. Um, And another key thing that I have learned to do, and I think it started out as a kid, is a defense mechanism um, or a coping mechanism for trauma is I visualize where I want to be. Um, You know, some people can call checking out and going to a happy place, you know, whatever you want to call it. Um, But I know that the entire time through BUDS, all I visualized was me standing in a awesome dress blue uniform with this big shiny trident on my chest at graduation. Um, and I just had that in my head the entire time when it sucked. I'm like, I don't want to give that up, man. If I quit now, I'll never get to see that. And that will suck. I mean, I'm paraphrasing. I can't remember exactly what my thoughts were 25 years ago, but probably a little more um, explicit. Yeah. I'm sure. I'm sure <laughs> there are a little more detailed than that. But, um, I distinctly remember, you know, that vision um, you know, as, uh, what's the word for it is as pompous and vain as that sounds, you know, I just I remember I, always having that vision that I want to, I want to see what I look like in that dress blue uniform with a big shiny trident and jump wings on. Um, so I kind of carried that as my, you know, my little beacon of hope through all that. I don't think that's pompous and vain. I think that that's just realistic. I think when we set a goal and envision what envision ourselves getting there, um, we're laying the foundation in that path uh, to, to make, to get ourselves there. Yeah, I agree. I'm, I'm a huge fan of visualizing success. And I know, again, that kind of sounds cliche and there's probably a thousand books written on it, but uh, there is a lot of value to, to visualizing and rehearsing, um, you know, mentally, because if you, if you can see it, if you can clearly see it, if you can clearly see the end state, you can get there. Um, I think a lot of people's problems with failure is they don't, they don't define and they don't see the end state. You know, again, I know that's kind of simplifying it, but you, you need to see where you're going to know how to get there. No, I, I, I really like that. That leads right into my next question. I was just saying, ask you, why do you think people quit? Why do we make that decision to quit? Quitting is a choice. Um, well, I say it's a choice. Sometimes it's not a choice. Sometimes you have and you can't help it. Um, I think a lot of a lot of reasons that people quit have to do with um, not having a realistic expectation of the requirements. If we just break it down academically, let's, we'll get away from the whole emotional part. Um, you know, in practical terms, um, one of the humorous sayings is everyone wants to be a seal when it's sunny outside. But nobody actually thinks it's that cool when you've been riding a Zodiac for six hours in the Pacific Ocean in the wintertime and you've been diving for two hours. Now you're trying to climb a caving ladder up an oil platform off the coast of Santa Barbara at two in the morning and you're shivering so bad you can't feel your hands. Nobody ever says, you know, I totally want to go do that. You know, our locked arms in the surf, um, you know, shivering next to each other in the Pacific Ocean during Hell Week. Um, everybody says they want to do it, but at the first sign of physical discomfort or sincere physical discomfort, nobody really wants to do that. Um, you know, they just want to 
wear the shiny trident and have girls hit on them with the bars and you know all the that all the, the title all the bragging yeah all the bragging rights that come with that but there's a lot of suck involved with that you know and the same goes for any other branch or you know the 160th same thing um you know a lot of people say oh i really want to be a 160th pilot and well then when you find out that you spend your entire life planning every single detail to the most you know infinite piece of minutia to ensure mission success you're like man that planning cycle sucks i'll usually tell them you know what guess what we do that for every single mission that's why we don't fail um you know so people quit because they don't have realistic expectations of what's going to be expected of them um and the other part of that is they don't properly prepare and plan for it that's a lot of peas but um that's true you know you could say why well, i want to i think i want to go be you know, I only speak in terms that I know of, but I want to go be a SEAL or I want to be a 160 pilot. Well, you know what? Um, if you want to be a SEAL, you need to know how to swim. You need to know how to swim pretty well. So, you know, there's ways you can do that. Or I always hear, well, you know, I'm just not a good runner. You know what? You can fix that. Get out on the road and run. That's how you fix being a bad runner. You run, yeah. You know, I mean, it's pretty – it's more simple than than people think it is. Like, well, I just – I'm, I'm just not a good swimmer. Well, you know what? You're not going to get any better of being a swimmer by sitting here complaining about it. You know, well, I don't have time. Well, make time. I mean, there's, there is no excuse for not meeting your goals. Really, the only excuse is you're just not willing to work hard enough to do it. And, and I know that probably gets off track a little bit, but. No, that's I exactly mean, where I want to go. You know, you're spot on. I mentor a lot of young people that are trying to get different special operations units you know, different military academies, something like that. And I hear every excuse in the book. And I said, Hey, listen, you're, if you want me to pat you on the butt and tell you it's going to be okay, I'm not. I said, you're going to fail. And here's why I said, you can't tell me, there's nothing you can tell me that I'm not going to tell you. It's an excuse. There's no reasons. There's just excuses. You can go be, you know, you can set your mind right now to go be an astronaut. You just have to decide whether or not you're willing to sacrifice and work hard enough to go do it. I'll give you a plan for it. But the first thing out of your mouth is, well, yeah, but I can't do because of like, there's, there's none of that. I can't do it. It's you're not willing to make the changes to make it happen. Yeah. The commitment to enduring the suck, going through the pain and embracing that suck and just saying, you know what, this is what it is. I've got to get through this. Um, and no matter what, I'm not going to quit. Like I'm going to do this no matter what. Yeah. You know, and that's part of, that's the action part of it. Like when you're truly in the training and right. under the physical stress and all that, the planning the whole, and preparation, yeah. planning and preparation. Mm. Um, you know, there's, there's a couple guys that, are, that do a lot of Instagram posts and, and you know, you're, you're familiar with, they're well known and, and they'll, I think I already know who you're talking, going to talk about, but well, yeah. they completely fail something epic, you know, and then they're like, and this is my learning point. I fail, but you can learn from this. And, and so, you know, kind of being a punk on that, my first thought is, I'm like, well, you know, maybe if you'd prepared for this a little bit better, you'd be telling us about the, the beauties of how you succeeded instead of the learning point from failing. Um, you know, so I probably got a different perspective on it. I don't think there's anything I have. You, you asked me what I learned in the SEAL teams. I will learn. I will tell you what I learned at the 160th um, is a no fail mentality. And that's not a cliche. That's not, you know, tossed around lightly. Everything that the 160th does 
is built around an absolute no-fail mentality. And so when you live a lifestyle like that, you learn to always make preparations and planning and, you know, prepare every single minute detail that you can possibly have control over so that you can deal with all the, the zingers and curveballs that come out that you can't control. You know, the environment or enemy action, all that kind of stuff that you have no influence over. Um, you can deal with that stuff as long as you have manipulated everything that you're, you're able to have control over. So I learned that from the 160th. And so that whole no fatality, that whole no fail mentality has made me realize that there's nothing you can't do. You just have to properly prepare for it. Um, and you can accomplish it. Would you say that to, uh, have a no fail mentality in your life, it just takes planning and preparation too, or what it would does. you say? How would you say you apply that to your life? Well, it's how, I mean, you'd have to narrow it down to, you know, if I'm going to the grocery store, to a certain degree, I make some preparations to make sure that store run is going to be successful. I know that sounds silly, um, but if my wife or my kids or something like that absolutely need picked up at a very particular time somewhere, or we're going to be late, or you know something else is going to be affected, well, I I don't look at my gas gauge and decide you know I'll I'll probably be all right. I'll probably be all right with this much gas. I leave a half early and I go make sure I have gas or, you know, I check the, I check the traffic and I know that's a really simplistic um, example of it, but, or if I'm going for a job interview, um, you know, I plan very specifically. I research the company. I research the guy I'm going to um, talk with. I find out exactly, you know, I'll dig around a little bit, find out, Hey, does anybody know exactly what questions you're going to ask or any other research I can do, you know, and if that interview is at nine o'clock in the morning, and I'm just using a random example, this would go all over the map, but if that interview is at nine o'clock the next morning, um, the day before, I'm gonna go drive that route and make sure that I know where I'm gonna park, how long it's gonna take me to get from the parking lot to the office so that I'm not late. The night before, I'm going to press my suit or whatever I'm gonna wear, I'm gonna have it hanging up in the order that I'm gonna put it on. I'm gonna inventory all my stuff, I'm gonna have my suitcase or briefcase or backpack or whatever, packed up with the documents. I'm not going to be rushing around 20 minutes before I have to leave wondering where is all my stuff. Um, I know that sounds like a complete brain melt and over preparation, but you know, if you want 100% no fail mission success, you have to put that much effort into it and it sucks and it's time intensive and it's detail intensive. But what do you want? You know, if, if you're just willing to take a 50, 50 or a 70, 30, um, or whether or not it's going to pan out, then you can make life easier on yourself and just say, you know what, I'll, I'll get my suitcase or I'll get my uh, briefcase together tomorrow morning. That's fine. Um, I had a flight lead, a guy named John Naylor, um, and I probably shouldn't send his name on the air, but he is retired yeah. now. <laughs> now you can keep it. John's retired. Um, and I hope he, he hears it. Um, but he was one of the most legendary um, and insightful and, and unconventional flight leads I'd ever flown with in the 160th. And I heard him tell a customer one time, um, one of the customers that we were carrying, he said, listen, if you will allow me to prepare to the amount of detail that I need to, I will 100%, 100% guarantee you that I will get you on that target plus or minus 30 seconds in the exact spot that you want. Because now, 
if you cannot provide me the information and the detail and the machinery that I need for this, I can give you 80%. Because if you're willing to accept 50%, you can make it easier on yourself. And so I thought that was a great way to explain it that, hey, I'm, I'm willing to do less, but your expectations have to be less as well. Um, so, you know, your amount of effort is commensurate with how much success you, you need to have. So that, that's kind of the whole no fell mentality in a nutshell, a big nutshell, but a nutshell nonetheless. How much preparation are you willing to put into to make sure you get the result that you want? Yep. They are completely related to each other. Well, I like that a lot. It's got, a, I got a lot of thoughts going through my head that I cannot articulate. I'm going to be up all night long. I got to go to work tomorrow morning. <laughs> I'm going to be thinking about this and be like, wow. Well, be kind, of about metal. Whole, well kind of on that whole preparation thing, I, I have to give credit. You know, we talked about mentors a little bit. And there's a, a guy named Mark Mady who was kind of a father figure for me several years ago when I really, really needed one and passed away um, from ALS in 2011. But one thing, I was younger and I didn't have the, the maturity or wherewithal to, to take it on board. But he'd always looked at me and he told me, he said, you know, if, if you really need to pull a rabbit out of the hat tomorrow, you go ahead and you should put, put a rabbit in the hat tonight. And at the time, I thought he was just a really eccentric, crazy guy. You know, mm -hmm. I loved him, but I, I didn't quite gather everything he was telling me. And so when I started embracing this no-fail mentality, I realized that really um, he was ahead of his time and he had a, a cartoonish and less eloquent way perhaps of saying it, but that was really what he was saying. You know, if you, if you want to pull a rabbit out of the hat, you absolutely, to save your life, have to pull a rabbit out of that hat in front of a crowd and you make sure that rabbit's stuffed in that hat. Um, you know, and to say the whole breaking it down to, to Barney simplicity, like you said, that's, that's kind of what it is. And so I use that term a lot and that's kind of my, my gentle reminder, um, you know, to prepare accordingly. Um, but it was one of your questions, you know, what's the best advice you'd ever been get, given? And I would say if there's one that I have always carried through that has cascaded into a lot of areas of my life, um, that would probably be it. Um, you know, it sounds really short and, uh, odd, this device but, usually is short though. It's, yeah. not, it's not, it's not an essay. It's not a speech somebody gave you. It's, it's two sentences, right? Yeah. It's simplified um, it. You remember it. What's the greatest tool you can teach someone that, um, to help them be resilient through their hardship? Well, one, I am a huge fan of meal to meal. And, you know, let's say someone's dealing with personal hardships, whatever it is, personal relationship, job. Um, everybody gets overwhelmed, myself included. So meal to meal might be a little micro, but you know, just, just make it through the day. I don't, I don't know of very many um, instances where the next morning isn't better in some way, shape or form, it might not be markedly better, but the next morning is always better. Um, when I have a lot of hard things going on, you know, mentally, emotionally, whatever, um, I tell my wife, I refer to it as my fainting goat mode where I'm not even tired, but if I'm emotionally exhausted, I just go to sleep because, you know, it just for a few hours, it just kind of solves everything. Um, 
you know, but I'm a huge fan of mornings and I don't know that, I don't know of much that doesn't get better with the next morning. So a little verbal tidbit, someone sticks, you know, someone's having a hard time, stick that in the back of your head that there's not much that doesn't get better in the next morning, which the unspoken part of that is you need to make it to the next morning to find out, you know, mm -hmm. I might be lying, but you won't know unless you make it to the next morning. And uh, you know what, maybe if that morning sucks, the third morning will be okay, but you got to stick around long enough to make sure you make it to the third morning. Yeah. I like that a lot. I, I so, tell my kids that all the time. Like, all right, just go to bed. You'll wake up and you'll feel better. Like dad, my finger's not going to not hurt. I'm like you got to hang down. Like you're fine. Like we'll put a bandaid on it, but that's not going to do anything for you. So I think, I think mornings can reset our perspective is I guess what I'm getting at. Yes. And, and I think, and it might be a pet peeve. You said, you know, what's, what's a key to have a resilient mindset. I will tell you what's not a key um, because I have teenagers and I'm living this life right now is you, I have three teenage sons. You cannot become someone by living through memes and social media and Instagram. And, and I know that sounds counterproductive because that's how you and I met, but just be, just because you subscribe to, just because you follow, you know, 20 operators and, and, you know, subscribe to all these different guys that have memes that, you know, tell you how you should live your life. That doesn't actually take the place of action. You know, <laughs> reading about it and reading about other people doing it does not actually serve as a substitute for doing it yourself. You cannot become great or successful um, by watching other people do it and talking about it. That is, it's a huge pet peeve. Um, and I'm probably pretty hard on people that I see it occurring to um, because it's rampant, you know, just, just because you talk about it does not make it so. It's, I, I think what's happening is people get inspired and they think that because they're inspired, they've changed, but you don't change anything unless you act on that inspiration. Yes. Uh, I'm probably going to trademark this, but I realized I said, you know, a, a meme or a cool Instagram quote will only take you up to, but not including the first moment of discomfort. It will not actually get you through, you know, that, that first uh, shock of cold water or that first embarrassment or, you know, any of the hard work or the homework you have to do or whatever to be successful. Um, reading about it does not make it any less painful. It doesn't motivate you. It doesn't give you any more skills. It just gives you that momentary euphoria that, you know, you can align with somebody that you happen to follow on Instagram or Facebook or Snapchat or whatever. Um, so probably a demotivator, but that's the truth. If you're going to do it, go do it and stop reading about someone else doing it. Exactly. That you said that you'll, it'll keep you motivated until you first feel uncomfortable. And that, for many years in my life, that was, that was my mantra is like, I'll do it till it gets hard. I'll do it till I feel uncomfortable. And then I quit. So my, my next question is when it gets uncomfortable, how do you get comfortable with it being uncomfortable? How do you accept that reality? What does it take? I don't, I don't know that you ever get comfortable being uncomfortable. Um, 
I mean, I, I hate saying funny bud stories. I don't have any chest beating bud stories. I just have funny ones because I distinctly remember in my head before I went to buds, taking cold showers and jumping into the cold ocean, thinking that I was conditioning myself and that I would get used to it and it would get better. So the first couple days of buds, you know, one of our instructors is standing there and he's like, Hey, how many of you dumbasses by raising your hand took cold showers before you came to buds thinking you'd get used to it. <laughs> and of course, like half the class raised the, you know, raised their hands. Like you guys are a bunch of friggin' idiots. He's like, cold water sucks. It sucks now. It sucked 50 years ago. It's going to suck your whole life. He's like, you're an idiot. It's never going to get better. You're never going to get used to it. All you did was spend the last six months being cold. And all we're going to do is make you cold for the next six months. You know, so I don't know that I'm really going to answer your question, but you never get used to it. It never doesn't suck. All you do is you develop tools and techniques to get through it faster so you don't hang out in that discomfort forever. You have fortitude through it, yeah, right? I know that's an abstract answer, but it doesn't ever get better. No one, you know, anybody who tells you, I just love the pain, well, they're either, you know, they have issues or they're lying to you. Because nobody likes being discomfort. And the way I deal with discomfort now is I go turn up the heat, I go buy the most expensive down jacket I can find, you know, I make sure that I'm comfortable. I don't deal with discomfort anymore. Mm -hmm. um, but when I'm forced to do it, either physically or emotionally, you just suck it up and do it. Um, but I refer to those, and someone gave me this, this visual years and years ago um, of cans of hard, you know, and they're like, hey, you figure till you're carrying a backpack with X amount of cans of hard in there, and they're finite. He goes, for talking purposes, let's say you have 10 cans of hard that span your entire lifetime. He's like, you want to be very cautious how you use those cans of hard. So only use them, uh, you know, when it's relevant and absolutely required, because if you use up that 10th can and you still got 30 years left on your life, he's like, you're going to be pretty miserable because you're not, you know, you're not going to have to deal with it. And I know that kind of sounds like a, uh, a cartoonish way of explaining it. But uh, I make myself as physically and emotionally comfortable as possible. That way, when I have to deal with, you know, pain, discomfort, stress, whatever, um, you know, it's, it's because I have to, not because I, I want to. You don't see me doing ultra marathons in the mountains or the Patan Death March or anything like that. And there's guys that do that, and that's awesome. Um, but I'd have to have a pretty compelling reason to go abuse myself like that. And that's just a physical aspect. Um, you know, by the same token, I suck at math. So you're not going to see me at the local university taking quant taking quantum physics classes. It's not my thing. Um, would it be good for me? Expanding? Absolutely. Um, but I'm not willing to deal with that kind of mental anguish. So again, I probably rambled. I'm not sure if that answers your question. No, I like it. I like it. It makes a lot of sense. So those times that it does get difficult and you've got to use a can of your heart, now where, you got it. How do you, where do you go to find that hardness inside of you? What does that look like for you? Um, I just focus really, really hard on the end state. Like I try and not hang out, you know, and just this sucks, this is horrible. One, I don't complain about it. Um, because, I mean, if you start complaining about it, it's not making it any easier. And that's, when, when you get to the position of being a good leader, you realize it's even less productive if you complain about things. Um, Cause there's a whole host of people that are willing to 
enjoy it right with you. Um, but if I have to do something that sucks, I just don't delay. I just, I just do it, you know, because it, it doesn't get any better. Like waiting doesn't get any better. And one of the reasons people quit is not so much the task at hand, whatever it is, it's the anticipation of the discomfort or the difficult conversation you have to have or the confrontation or whatever, you know, the anticipation I've always found in my life is almost always worse than the actual act that you have to do. Yeah. Always. I a hundred percent agree with you on that. I mean, you, you stress, you stress more about being uncomfortable than you, and that makes you more uncomfortable than the actual act that's uncomfortable. Yeah. The, the, the procrastination. Yeah. Physical part of it. Um, you know, I don't know how many people stress out about whatever a tennis match, you know, weightlifting match or, you know, something like that. But once that first ball comes across the net or the starting gun goes off, you're not worried about any of that anymore. You're only focused on the task at hand, but the anticipation and nervousness and sweating palms and all that stuff sucks. I mean, I distinctly remember, um, you know, sitting in the Zodiac waiting to get in the freezing water in the wintertime, just, just thinking about it for hour and it made me shiver uncontrollably. And I'm like, this is horrible. I'm going to die. I'm going to get hypothermia. And then as soon as you roll over in the boat, you get about a second or two of catching your breath, you know, roll over in the water, catch your breath for a couple seconds. And then you're off because now you're focused on whatever you're doing. But that hour of anticipation, you know, is, was far worse than the actual evolution that we accomplished, you know, or, anticipation of how many times have we had to anticipate having a, a confrontation or a difficult conversation with somebody at the end of it. You're like, Oh, that wasn't that bad. You know, I mean, it, I've been married for 13 years. I've had conversations that I've dreaded yeah. having all day and I get home and I'm like, Oh, that wasn't bad at all. Why did I worry about this? Yeah. It's, you know, it's the same, uh, same pretense, just different mediums, I guess. Yeah. Well, I know it's getting late your time. So I'm going to ask, just ask you one more final question. Cause I don't, I really appreciate your time. The one question, the last question I have for you is let's pretend the next 30 seconds, whatever you say, every single person in the world is going to hear, what would you say? When you are 50 or 60, do not look back at your life and say, I wish I would have insert whatever you want. I wish I would have tried this. I think I could have done this. Um, just don't. And I don't mean do crazy things, base jumping, run with the bulls, all that kind of stuff. Just whatever it is you think you want to do, do it or at least fail trying to do it. Because when you're my age, you're older, um, you will have such clarity of thought and such calmness and such a sense of accomplishment. You won't ever feel like you need to prove anything to anyone. You'll be a much calmer person. You know, you'll be a better husband, better wife, better spouse, whatever. Um, and you won't spend your whole life trying to prove anything to anyone. Um, just do it. Just, you know, just do not have regrets. And that doesn't mean you have to go accomplish greatness. Whatever that means to you, just don't have any regrets. At least attempt to go do it. Don't live your life at the end of it, looking back and say, you know, I wonder what would have happened if that's my, that's my closing advice. That's great advice. I, I really like that. And I appreciate so much you taking the time to talk with me and be a part of this show and share your, your experience and your knowledge with uh, everybody who listens. And I'm sure uh, 
a lot of people are going to benefit from this. And I'm extremely grateful for your time. No, my pleasure. And uh, like I said, no, there's no uh, crazy smart things that occur out there, proprietary stuff. It's just, uh, I guess, the results of a hard lived, I guess, would be the explanation for that. Um, that's great. You had some great wisdom. I appreciate it. <laughs>